Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Today's number is 818. 818. That's the number of television episodes that Hulu just bought the rights to in order to resurrect ABC's TGIF lineup from the 1990s. They just cut a deal to buy the entire runs of Full House, Family Matters, Step by Step, Perfect Strangers, and Hangin' with Mr. Cooper. I have not seen a figure on how much money they paid for that, but it had to be some serious scratch, especially considering the fact that Netflix had to be in the hunt for the rights of Full House, since they do the sequel Fuller House. My personal favorite of the old TGIF lineup was the underdog Hanging with Mr. Cooper. I loved that show. My dad and I used to sit and watch it every week it was on, and I loved it because Omar Gooding was my hero growing up after I watched him on Nickelodeon on Wild and Crazy Kids. I loved that guy. So... 818. That is peak nostalgia. This is the Stream Police. The Stream Police podcast is brought to you by OverdueReview.com. Want something more in-depth than a sarcastic, pretentious, 140-character review of your favorite movie? Read long-form reviews of movies, TV, and music from the distant and recent past at OverdueReview.com. Hello again, my friends. So glad to be back in the closet talking to you once again here on the Stream Police Podcast, this monthly odyssey into all things streaming on television, in movies, in music. Whatever's out there, we seek it out, and we try to talk to you about it once a month here, as brought to you by OverdueReview.com. Let me go ahead and light up my stogie before I uh, get to the rest of the pleasantries here. i got to light my, light my cigar. I'm sitting in my closet in Cincinnati, Ohio. That's how I do the show every month. I get it nice and toasty in here and smelling great by lighting up first. I had to give the Zippo a couple uh, extra flicks there that time. I need to need to refill that bad boy. Maybe he needs a new wick. I don't know. Anyway, welcome into my closet in Cincinnati, Ohio. I am Clint Davis, movies and TV editor at OverdueReview.com. In a little bit from now, we'll be hearing from my pal and your man in the music department, Andy Sedlak, the music editor at OverdueReview.com. He'll be talking to you from his basement in Dayton, Ohio. That's how we do it. This is a classy program. Do not let anyone tell you that it is not. I'm going to talk to you a little bit later on about a documentary I just finished on uh, HBO that I was very impressed with. 
even though I felt like it was on a well-worn topic, and also uh, a movie that's in theaters right now that wants to present itself as being uh, you know, a powerful feminist flick, but really I saw right through it and figured out that it was just typical sexist male fantasy pornographic ideas uh, in the guise of feminism. So we're going to talk about that coming up in a little bit as well. But let me start, as I always do, by running down for you the greatest TV show theme song of all time for this week. And my selection to add into the pantheon of the greatest TV show theme songs that I've talked about uh, month in, month out here. This time I'm going to add a show that is very near and dear to my heart. I'm talking about 1988's Roseanne. And the theme song is the theme from Roseanne by Dan Foliart and Howard Pearl. I don't know about you, but as soon as I heard that little harmonica stinger that opened each episode, I knew I wasn't moving my ass for 30 minutes. As I said, Roseanne is near and dear to my television heart because it's probably the first show that I ever watched that made me feel all the emotions that a great show can bring out in you. When I was a kid, I mean, I watched a lot of shows with my parents, but, you know, I mean, I was young when Roseanne was on in its first run. I was really young. I I was only nine years old when it went off the air uh, for the first time. So I was watching other shows like Home Improvement. I loved Home Improvement. It always made me laugh. The Simpsons always made me laugh every time I watched it. And then my mom would watch Beverly Hills 90210. And I knew that the music and like the overdramatic moments were supposed to make me feel something. But, you know, I was young. I didn't really understand what that was. But Roseanne was the one that made me understand the stakes, even from a young age. I got what this show was about. I got what was at stake here. And I was with the Connor family from the start. As I said, I used to watch the show a little bit with my parents during its first run, and that first run, by the way, did last 222 episodes from 1988 to 1997 on ABC. But I really got serious about watching Roseanne when I was probably about 12 or 13 years old, and I figured out that they were showing the episodes in order, four at a time, on Nick at Night. So every night they'd show four episodes of Roseanne. I think it was like 9 to 11 o'clock. They would show four episodes of Roseanne back to back, you know, to back. And they were showing them in the order that they aired so I could kind of, you know, follow the story. And Roseanne was definitely a show that had arcs. It wasn't just, uh, you know, we forget about everything that happened last week. So I felt like it was really rewarding to watch it every night. It was appointment viewing for me. I remember one time we were visiting somebody at the hospital for something that had happened. I mean, this was in the evening, so it had to be something that suddenly happened. We're at the hospital. One of my family members, I don't remember who it was. Again, I'm like 12 or 13 years old, and I actually asked a hospital worker to change one of the TVs in the lobby to Nick so that I could catch that night's episodes because I knew we were going to be there for a while. So I never wanted to miss Roseanne when they were re-airing it on Nick at Night. So this theme song, though, this song to me just hammers home the rough edges that this family has. The song immediately lets you know that these guys, the Connor family, they're not the Huxtables, all right? They're not dancing around on screen making silly faces while smooth jazz is playing in the background. They don't live in a brownstone, you know, in a city. The Connor family are living like on in small town Illinois 
in this crappy little house that they show at the beginning of every episode. And in the opening credits, they're sitting around this tiny dining room table. It's not even a dining room table. It's actually in the kitchen. It's a dinner table in the kitchen. As many of us, that was how my table was growing up. They're eating delivered pizzas, you know, opening the box up, getting slices out, and they're drinking sodas from cans while the camera spins around each of their faces and this bluesy, sax-driven theme song cranked. And you know what? Almost all of them, really except Becky, had a smile on their face during that opening. So it didn't matter. They didn't have anything. Um, like I said, they weren't dancing around, making silly faces, but they were laughing with each other, and they were having dinner together. It's, it's a great opening. I think it's one of the best opening credit sequences that's ever been on TV. And this song just puts it over the top. This was working-class America personified in one family and in one 50-second piece of music. <laughs> The Roseanne theme song was composed by TV music veterans Howard Pearl and Dan Foliart. These guys worked as composers on classic shows like Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley. They worked on the 9 to 5 TV series. They worked on a lot of shows back in the 70s and 80s especially. Foliart would go on after Roseanne to actually compose the theme songs for Home Improvement and 7th Heaven, among some other shows. But this, the Roseanne theme was the masterpiece for both of these guys. As I said, I love the whole opening credit sequence for Roseanne. The theme song and the credits actually changed a little bit every year, reflecting the growing ages of the cast. And the song just, you know, they added different flourishes to it as the show went on, eventually getting some lyrics uh, in the ninth season done by uh, John Popper from Blues Traveler. And I like the ninth season theme. Some people kind of dog on it. They add the lyrics in there, but I actually think it was pretty cool. And uh, it just, you know, an interesting kind of final evolution of this theme song. Like I said, if I heard that theme song, I knew I wasn't moving for at least 30 minutes. And, of course, the song itself wasn't over until you heard Roseanne laughing as the final notes of the theme rang out. There you go, Roseanne. The theme from Roseanne, and that show aired 222 episodes from 1988 to 1997 on ABC. And that, to me, is the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. I tell you, man, I really, I loved Roseanne. Loved that show. And I was not alone, either. The show won a Peabody Award and was consistently ranked uh, in the years since it went off the air on lists of the best TV shows of all time. And it was number one in the ratings at one point and consistently in the top five and then top 20 of Nielsen ratings during its entire run. People loved Roseanne. It was a huge hit show. Um, and just like, you know, middle America really loved it. And I think uh, it, people really liked what Roseanne Barr was, you know, saying about family life and about, you know, living in blue collar America and, just trying to make it by. And the, the marriage between Roseanne and Dan, um, between the actors Roseanne Barr and, and John Goodman, to me is one of the best marriages ever on television. I love their marriage. The two of them actually really looked like they enjoyed being together in scenes, and they really looked like they loved each other. Like, it did not feel like, it didn't feel like acting at all. 
ABC is actually bringing Roseanne back this fall for eight new episodes, and I'm definitely going to watch it. I mean, we rip a lot on sequels and reboots and all that, but I'll watch the Roseanne reboot. I mean, I'm sure they've got enough. Uh, I'm sure they have enough to say for eight new episodes, and the original cast will be back together, so it'll be fun. I'm not totally sure how they're going to make it work because the bombshell series finale, if you remember, a lot of things changed to where uh, I don't know how they're going to just pick up. Are they going to just act like the series finale never happened? If they do, that'll be a shame to make that episode not canon because if you never saw it, I'm telling you, Roseanne's finale has got to be one of the ballsiest and most memorable final episodes and especially the final scenes that I have ever watched from a TV show. Um, You find out in the final few moments of the finale that Roseanne's been writing her memoir the whole time the series is going on and many things that are presented in the show never actually happened the way that they were shown, including like who her daughters married. I mean, she was just making things up as she went along. And then you find out in the end, this is, this was like, actually she was an unreliable narrator for the entire series, including the fact that Dan actually died of a heart attack during the, uh, during a moment in the penultimate season. But Roseanne, the character, wanted to pretend that he was still alive and pretend that they'd won the lottery. So she made up this elaborate thing that went on in the final season. So it was just it was a really ballsy, memorable final episode that I'll never forget. And I totally recommend, you know, watching that final episode. It's great, but it doesn't really work unless you've seen the the whole series. But um, just what a great show and a great ending. And I wonder how they're going to pick up from that. It'll be interesting to see if they reference it or not. Roseanne, ballsy show. Always going to be one of my all-time favorite series. All right, let's move on. I want to talk about a show that I watched uh, a couple months ago on Netflix but never really got the chance to talk about with you guys. just want to touch on it real quick and tell you that if you're into, if you're into, like, you like to listen to true crime podcasts and you like to watch, you know, true crime TV shows and you like murder mysteries and especially those kind of murder mysteries that are, like, from British television, like the Broadchurch kind of you know kind of things if you like that kind of stuff police procedural grim murder mystery kind of stuff you've got to check out the fall on netflix beth and i spent um just we watched the whole series in like uh two weeks basically because there's not that many episodes there's three seasons of it it's a netflix original um and it's just one of those shows that's totally out of the mold of a bbc you know crime procedural but this show is so like not really about the crime because you know from the start who the killer is. So really, this is more like a cat and mouse show. So what the fall is is it follows this uh, this veteran you know police detective. She's a British police detective who goes to Northern Ireland to investigate this you know these killings, and the the detective is played by Gillian Anderson from the X Files uh, and from Hannibal. Just she's really good. She's great in these kind of steely. Uh, you know, these like steely, powerful female investigator kind of parts. She's just she's great at that. Um, and so she's the lead character in the fall. And then uh, she's chasing this guy who's a killer uh, who's played by Jamie Dornan from the Fifty Shades of Grey movies. He's he plays, um, you know, the, the main guy in those movies. So they play cat and mouse for three seasons, basically, of fantastic detective TV. And we know the whole time that Jamie Dornan is the guy who's doing this. He's this family man really like a nice guy by all accounts. He's He's been married for a long time. He and his wife have a good relationship. They've got a kid, or is it two kids? I can't remember if they have, have two kids. I think they have two. Um, and he's just like a good dad and, you know, a family man and all this stuff, works uh, as a, you know, like a psychologist and, and does a good job in that job, being empathetic with people. And it's, it, but at the same time, 
he likes to sexually assault and kill women, pose their bodies, paint their fingernails and all this stuff, take pictures of them, and then escape without anyone ever knowing, you know, who did it. So police in Northern Ireland are hunting this guy. They don't know who it is. We know who it is. Um, and you wonder if Jillian Anderson is going to figure it out or, you know, what's going to happen. So, and it really gets into like her personal life a little bit. Her character is really well built. Um, and it's not just about the investigation, but it's a, it's just a really impressive show, especially the fact that every episode of the fall was written by one guy, Alan Cubitt. And he's a guy who used to work on the show prime suspect with Helen Mirren. And the, I'm not even kidding you. When we watched the fall, like the first thing I said, I was like, this is like, like whoever wrote this must have watched Prime Suspect and just wanted to copy it. Like they wanted to bring that show back because I used to watch Prime Suspect. I started watching it on DVD. I would rent it from the library. I never saw it when it was first on. Um, But I I really got into Prime Suspect a couple of years ago. And that show is awesome. If you ever find it, each episode is basically the length of a movie. So it's kind of like. Um, you know, Sherlock, like the episodes are like 90 minutes long and they go through a full investigation and a full case. A season is an episode basically. Uh, but Helen Mirren's just great in that. And she's like this hard ass female, uh, detective. And, um, she's not just a detective. She's risen up through the ranks of the department and, you know, it gets into her sex life and, um, you know, her style of investigating and she rubs people the wrong way. And the character that Gillian Anderson plays in the fall is basically the same kind of character that Helen Mirren plays in prime suspect. They're very good. Both of them. And Alan Cubitt, like I said, worked on prime suspect and he wrote every single episode of the fall and it shows totally. So if you like prime suspect at all, you have to watch the fall. You will really, really dig it. Um, but actually I think this shows better than prime suspect was. It just allows you to get more into each of those characters, um, because you're spending, you know, more time with the killer. It's not just over kind of in one season and then move on to the next case. Um, and I just, I really enjoyed the show. I love the look of it. Um, I like the language they use. I like, uh, you know, the investigative technique that's shown off by Jillian Anderson's character. She really carries a lot of weight. Like she, you feel like she's definitely an expert. She's not just making this up. She's legit. I mean, you can understand why she got to where she is and why she rubs people the wrong way. So it's just a really, it's a great show. Two top-notch performances at the top of it. And the supporting cast does a fantastic job as well. A lot of these actors are actually from Northern Ireland. um, And it's interesting to see a show shot in Northern Ireland, taking place in Northern Ireland. And it's not a show that's about, like, you know politics or or it's not about the IRA or something like that it has nothing to do with any of that it's just that this is just the setting of this show and this is a hard place to live man these people are hard but it really I mean it makes Northern Ireland look as it is like a gorgeous country and uh, it's a place that it kind of it softened the image of that place for me a little bit at least as I was watching the show so uh, give it a watch man I think you'll uh, I think you'll really like it if you like those kind of crime shows and it's a it's a very fast watch, few episodes, and the performances are fantastic. It's just a cool show. It's called The Fall, and it's on Netflix right now. Uh, three seasons of it. It's unclear if it's going to come back for a fourth season or not. Alan Cubitt has not committed to doing a fourth season, um, but uh, if they do, I'll certainly watch a fourth season of this show as well. So give it a watch right now, and and you, it, and it it does have resolution at the end of the third season. So. You're not going to feel like you're left hanging in the middle of something if you watch it as it is right now. But again, the fall right now is on Netflix. It's been 10 days now, and there's been some speculation that Nicola has stayed true to his word, that he's gone away. 
that he stopped. I don't believe that it works that way. Remember that there is a cycle that he goes through. After an attack, there's a cooling off period. But then the deviant fantasies start to kick in and the pressure starts to build. Remember, it's an addiction. He takes his fantasies and he turns them into reality. That makes him feel superior to the rest of us mere mortals. And as such, in his own mind, he feels he has the right to decide who lives and who dies. All right, let me roll over to HBO right now for a minute to talk about a documentary series that the network just aired in the last month, and right now every episode of it is streaming for you on HBO Now. I'm sure it's probably on HBO Go as well. It's called The Defiant Ones, and this is a four-part, it's about five hours long, uh, five-hour documentary um, about the relationship, the strange relationship and the separate careers of Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine, who came together and a few years ago uh, sold their company Beats for uh, more than $3 billion to uh, Apple, of course. But before they did that, the story is you know all about their musical careers, uh, both of them gifted producers, both of them gifted marketers, uh, growing up on separate coasts uh, in totally different lifestyles from each other. And, uh, you know, working, having totally different backgrounds as far as the kinds of artists that they worked with, uh, but coming together and forming this like beautiful marriage of two legitimate musical and marketing geniuses. Um, and it is fascinating to see it come together. So, again, the Defiant Ones, when I first saw the commercials for it, the, the promos for it, like made it look fantastic. I thought that this was a movie like about all of these kind of defiant musicians, because in the preview, they're showing interviews with like, uh, they're showing clips of like Marilyn Manson. They've got clips of Eminem. They're showing interviews with Trent Reznor. They've got, you know, some Primus on there. Of course, these are all Interscope artists, which was the label that Jimmy Iovine started. But I kind of thought it was like about just these badass artists and we're going to kind of go through their history. But no, this is much more focused than that. This is just about, this is truly about Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine. And it uses a lot of anecdotes and interviews from artists that they've worked with over the years. But it's really about these two guys um, and how they've worked together despite coming up in completely, you know, alien backgrounds from one another. The Defiant Ones was directed by Alan Hughes, uh, who's one half of the Hughes brothers. I don't know if you remember the Hughes brothers at all, but uh, they're the ones that did Menace to Society back in the 90s. Uh, that's, that is a fantastic movie. It just uh, one of those movies that knocked me on my ass the first time I ever watched it. They did Dead Presidents, uh, The Book of Eli a few years ago. Hughes Brothers have worked together a lot. Uh, but Alan Hughes himself did this movie. He directed The Defiant Ones, and he did a, a wonderful job with it. This is an impressive film, just alone because of the breadth of it. Like, they exhaustively cover the lives and careers of both of these guys. And if you know anything, like Dr. Dre... There could be a 700-page biography written about Dr. Dre because his life has included that many momentous, you know, occasions and, um, you know, and not just highs, but, you know, low lows and interesting innovations and all kinds of things. Um, I mean, he, he has had truly, you know, one of the just 
most interesting lives ever in music. And Jimmy Iovine's the same way. I mean, you could write a 700-page biography about this guy, get totally exhaustive into his childhood, into him, you know, just kind of stopping into a studio and becoming a producer just, uh, you know, by sheer will and his relentless nature and his time running Interscope and, and, and doing beats with Dre. And, I mean, these guys have just had interesting lives. But this movie really gets deep into it. It does not just show them as geniuses. It does do that a lot. The movie does kind of, like, slobber on both of them a lot. Uh, but it also does get into the nitty gritty. It gets into when Dr. Dre assaulted D. Barnes years ago, uh, back when he was still with NWA. And, um, you know, it gets into some of the sadness from both of their lives, like Dr. Dre's brother being murdered and Jimmy Iovine's divorce and, you know, just and, and why his wife felt like she needed to leave him. Uh, which really comes down to his personality at the end of the day. So it's it, it's an exhaustive film, certainly, about these two guys. But they interview a ton of great musical minds, and it's so cool to see these people sitting down for interviews. Like, there's a bunch of interviews with Dr. Dre, obviously, a bunch of interviews with Jimmy Iovine, and a lot of footage from them hanging out in their homes as well. So you're kind of seeing them when they don't know the camera's rolling. Uh, interviews with Bruce Springsteen, Patti Smith, uh, Tom Petty, Gwen Stefani, uh, Trent Reznor, Snoop Dogg, the DOC, Eminem, Ice Cube, David Geffen, John Landau. Uh, there's interviews with family members of both of them, like Dr. Dre's wife, also with Dee Barnes. There's interviews with, uh, you know, Jimmy Iovine's ex-wife, his sister. Uh, it, just all these people that know them really well and have worked with them a lot over the years are interviewed in this documentary that really it's a very good looking film too like the way it's edited they you know file footage using that in documentaries is a, you know a tale as old as time that's the way most documentaries are built or with a lot of file footage but the way that Alan Hughes edited this thing um, was just, I mean, it kept the whole thing feeling electric as it went. They play a lot of great music, not just the obvious cuts from these artists, but like th truly the best cuts from these artists. Like one of the episodes ends uh, when they're about to talk about the chronic in the next episode, they play little ghetto boy, which is one of, probably my favorite song from the whole record, the chronic. And it's, but it's one of those songs you never hear anywhere. So I th just thought that was fantastic that this is the song of all the great ones, like that they spin into as they're going to talk about this fantastic album. So it's a really well-made movie and that you could tell it's made by guys who are fans of Dr. Dre, especially and of Jimmy Iovine. But, it, I mean, it, it just gets totally into all these artists they've worked with. Stevie Nicks, she's interviewed as well in there um, and talking about her time dating Jimmy Iovine and also working with him and how disastrous that whole relationship kind of was um, for friendships, careers, and everything else. It's just it's a really cool movie. So even if you don't care about Dr. Dre or about Jimmy Iovine, if you just are somebody who likes to see kind of genius at work, and if you like pop culture and you want to know more about the history of music, kind of where we're at now, give this movie a watch because I think you're really going to enjoy it. You'll you'll find yourself, even if you don't care about Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine, there are artists that they've worked with that you know I'm sure you were a fan of. And some of these clips will take you back, man, take you back to the early days of Eminem and when 50 Cent got signed by Interscope. And just a lot of really cool stuff is covered in uh, in this movie. So The Defiant Ones right now is streaming on HBO Now. Um, and I just I couldn't recommend it more. I was really impressed. I loved this movie. I've watched a lot of music documentaries over the years, uh, and this one is right up there with some of the best that I have ever seen. I think uh, I think uh, Alan Hughes should be proud. He did a really good job covering these two guys and making this movie just electric to watch, just exciting. I really liked it. So that right now again is on HBO now. Four episodes 
um, of about an hour each. One of them's uh, longer than an hour, but the whole thing rounds up to about five hours of running time, and I enjoyed every minute of it. I wanted to leave. I wanted to leave death row and everything that was accumulated. I was going, Trey, this label's worth a lot of money. You should get paid for it. You own half the label. He goes, no. I didn't want anything following me. I'm done. I'm done. So I called Dre. I said, don't break up the Beatles. You keep the band together, you know? And he said, no, I can't do it. There's nothing I can do about it. Everything just changed. It became a lot more violent, you know? Engineers getting beat down, just random people getting beat down and shot at in the studio, in the mic booth, all kind of shit. I was just against. You saw some of this? I'm not saying that on camera. It was always incidents that are secret that we will never speak on. Power, control, celebrity. It'll fuck anybody. Anybody. And it happened at death row. All right, we'll keep it in the music lane. I'm going to take a breather, kick back, puff my stogie a little bit, and let Andy Sedlak take it over from here. I'll toss it over to him in his basement in beautiful Dayton, Ohio. Mr. Sedlak. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. You know... To a degree, every profession takes its toll on the practitioner. It's just something you have to accept along with the gig. It's part of life. Uh, Nothing is ever all good or all bad. No matter what you do, uh, there will be blowback. No matter what you choose to do in life, there will be downsides. That's just the way it is. Uh, except for doing the show, friends. Uh, no, <laughs> no downsides here. I am Andy Sedlak, music editor for OverdueReview.com. Great to be with you once again. Now, it's, it's a cliche at this point to think about the road and the life of a touring musician and how lonely it is. Uh, it's a complete cliche, but, but we, you know, we may not realize the depths of that particular reality. Living with four or five other men in a confined space with no privacy, none of your basic amenities, you're bound to run into issues. Well, when I finish a tour, I say, that's it. I'm never doing it again. Because really? I'm tired out and I'm drained. I don't ever want to see another stage. I can't go out like bands can go out year after year. And, and I can't see how they do that. I just don't understand how they can keep getting it up year after year. Mm-hmm. Forget it. This is just stupid. Why do I bring this up now? I bring it up 
because of Justin Bieber. I've talked about him on the show before. I don't think very highly of him, but this isn't about that. Uh, I, I bring him up because he recently canceled a tour. Now, it's a big deal when you cancel an entire tour. Uh, people have their tickets in advance. Fans have their tickets in advance. Sometimes they have to go to great lengths uh, to get them. Uh, there are marketing efforts tied into a tour. Radio stations plan ahead to uh, to promote the event. Uh, the concert venue was banking on a, a certain amount of money coming in. It's just a big deal. So what's accounting for the majority of the artist's income? Well, nearly 75%, which adds up to be $682.7 million, came from live shows. In his case, and we're talking about the Purpose Tour, he's been on the road for the last year and a half. He's played on six continents, over 150 shows. Played MetLife Stadium over in, in, in Jersey. It's a big place. And as of this recording, there is no reason given for the cancellation of his tour. His people, always his people, uh, cited unforeseen circumstances. Unforeseen circumstances. Every profession is hard on the practitioner. This is no exception. Listen to this. More than 60% of musicians have suffered from depression or other psychological issues on the road. That's according to a study released uh, just, just a few years ago by a charity supporting musicians. They surveyed hundreds. Over 70% of them said touring was an issue for them. Why? Said Grammy-nominated producer Matt Zoe. of touring is the airports, the hotels, sitting in a metal tube for up to 16 hours at a time. It's easy to let your body slip into into decay, even for a person with a healthy emotional state. For those with anxiety, hotel rooms are like prison cells. What he's saying, my friends, is that the rigors of touring sometimes only aggravate the neuroses that these people were born with, what they had developed their craft in part to combat. The study goes on to note that the emotional highs can be problematic too. Now, we're not sure if Bieber falls into this or if other musicians, you think of other musicians who have canceled tours along the way, if they fall into this, but think about it. For many According to this study, for many, the contrast between the highs of a successful show and the anticlimactic lows that often follow can be hard to adjust to. Mental health professionals have coined a new term, post-performance depression, or PPD. Post-performance depression, PPD. A leading doctor notes that when the body uh, experiences major shifts in mood, it's flooded with several different neurotransmitters resulting in a biochemical release that leads to a feeling of ecstasy. That is to say it feels really good. The problem is that after these moments, the nervous system needs time to recalibrate itself to prepare for another release. After an exciting performance, the body starts to balance out the level of neurotransmitters and therefore is not releasing the same level that caused all those exciting feelings. That can result in lingering sadness. 
Now, for the most part, that's not the uh, the the everyday experience that you and I that you and I have. This physician notes that in everyday life, biochemicals are released and a recovery follows, but both are on a smaller scale. There's not much difference between the two. There's not such a difference, rather, between the two. But musicians, when performing live, can experience higher highs and then lower lows follow. That, of course, takes its toll. Who knows whether Bieber suffers from this. But, man, it's possible. And I'm telling you, sometimes I wonder if you and I, the listeners, don't get the best end of this deal. We get all the inspiration and none of the emotional cliffhangers. No PPD for us. Every occupation can be hard on the practitioner. But, man, you know, here's the thing about it. Here's the thing. The bottom line, nobody knows about about, uh, PPD when they pick up a guitar or, or when they begin vocal lessons. Post-performance depression. It's a bummer. That's a bummer. I know. I'm bumming you all out again. I know it. You may think that this may be a natural time to, uh, to pivot to Chester Bennington. But I won't. Bennington, of course, was the, uh, the uh, vocalist for Linkin Park. Committed suicide in July. 41 years old. Uh, but you remember our pact here, friends. Unless I personally shed a tear... Uh, I won't talk about uh, musician deaths anymore. It doesn't mean that they weren't important. It doesn't mean that they don't deserve to be noted. Uh, But I only have so much time here, and I don't want to turn this into the podcast of death. That said, I want to talk about Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger. Now, there's a man that's going strong. A day after his 74th birthday, his 74th. He released two new songs. They're solo songs. Put them out online. And what struck me first was how good his voice sounds. And it's not like he's relying on, on, on digital alteration or anything. His voice just sounds that good. Here's one of the two new songs. It's called England Lost. When performers get older, you know, sometimes their voices just, they just sound weathered. It's how life works. But Jagger uh, and really his other bandmates seem impervious to life's limitations. Uh, I've read that he runs six miles a day. I mean, what I'm saying is that the man is in remarkable shape. The second song that he put out, by the way, called, uh, see, Gotta Get a Grip. Here it is.
songs are topical, downright acidic. It's an emotion that Jagger has always uh, worn well, better than his peers, perhaps. And while we're living through our own national nightmare here in the States, we, we can't forget that Jagger is, of course, uh, English. He's dealing with uh, the aftermath of Brexit. Depending on, on what you've read, the Rolling Stones either have been in the studio already or are planning to go in the studio very soon. They want to put out another uh, uh, original album, album of original songs, and until then, I believe these Jagger solo cuts should hold us over just fine. It's an upside of the current musical moment, frankly. For all its uncertainty, we do live in a time where musicians can just put out songs online for us. No hassles on their end, really. In the past, songs like England Lost and Gotta Get a Grip would have been left in the vault. They would have been left in the vault. Would have shown up on a a rarities record or an outtakes record uh, released 15 or 20 years down the line. But these days, they can just toss them out there on the internet. And hey, I'm grateful for it. I want to see you, but England loves. And finally, I would like to note that a very special song turned. 30, 3 zero, turned 30 years old, a very special song indeed. Yes, never going to give you up from Mr. Rick Astley, turned 30 on July 27th. Never going to give you up, never going to let you down. Perhaps the very first viral meme of the modern era, and what a historical footnote that is. Uh, the, the song was already 20 years old when Rickrolling became a thing back in 07. Shit, even that was 10 years ago. Hard to believe. For any youngsters listening, Rickrolling is when you surprise somebody on the internet with a clip of Rick Astley's Never going to give you up video. The person is obviously expecting something else. And then, boom, this cheeky yet earnest song comes on. Sounds like this. Never going to make you cry. Never going to say goodbye. Never going to tell a lie and hurt you. Never going to give you up. Never going to let you down. Ah, uh, yes. Never Gonna Give You Up was released in 1987. 
It was written by the songwriting trio of Stock, Aitken, Waterman. That's Mike Stock, Matt Aitken, and Pete Waterman. They also wrote this song. If you can believe it, they work with Judas Priest. Priest cut three of their songs. They work with Kylie Minogue. That's probably not as surprising. But Never Gonna Give You Up was a, a legitimate smash. Number one in the U.S., number one in England, and in 23 other countries. You may not have known that Barry Manilow covered the song. I really don't have much more to add to that, but here's his version. Never gonna give, never gonna give. All right, y'all, you know that we are assembling the greatest playlist known to man during each show. We add five more songs to our playlist, which you can find on Spotify. Just search Stream Police. The first song that we'll add this month from Bob Dylan, it's called What Was It You Wanted? What was it you wanted? You can tell me I'm back. We can start it all over. Get it back on the track I'm paying attention Go ahead, you can speak What was it you wanted When you were kissing my cheek And it's such a good song, I'm going to give you Willie Nelson's version, too that you want Tell me again so I'll know What's happening in there What's going on in your show What was it you wanted Could you say it again I'll be back in a minute You can get it together by then Let's see, uh, third on our list, Piece of Crap by Neil Young and Crazy Horse. Try to save the trees, bought a plastic bag, the bottom fell out, it was a piece of crap. This next song is by a Christian artist by the name of Chuck Gerard. Uh, the song was released several years ago, and its message, uh, frankly, is as strong as any, particularly these days. Uh, it's called Don't Shoot the Wounded. It's easy to love the people who are 
standing hard and fast, pressing on to meet that higher calling. But the ones who might be struggling, we tend to judge too harshly and refuse to try and catch them when they're falling. We put people into boxes and we draw our hard conclusions. And when they do the things we know they should not do, we sometimes write them off as hopeless and we throw them to the dogs. Our compassion and forgiveness sometimes seem in short supply. So I say, don't shoot the wounded. They need us more than ever. They need our love, no matter what it is they've done. Sometimes we just condemn them and don't take time to hear their story. Don't shoot the wounded. Someday you might be one. Finally, I give you Babysitter by the Ramones. That's it. Appreciate it. Back to Clint. Peace. Thank you very much, Andy. And, man, I totally get where he's coming from as far as the podcast of death. And, you know, because there are great celebrities die every month. We do this show once a month. So if we wanted to, we legitimately could just spend the entire show talking about people who've died and how much we liked them. That's how it's, you know, really... Uh, getting at this point because all of you know a lot of our heroes are growing older and they're just dying of old age they're not you know or they're not dying of old age and he didn't i know he didn't want to touch on chester bennington too much because of that he didn't want to be too macabre but i just wanted to mention chester bennington real quick because i'm not sure why like i was i i liked lincoln park fine when i was in high school i think all of us of a certain age and you know white kids growing up liked Linkin Park because their sound was interesting and they were kind of, you know, screaming about angst. And it was just cool sounding music and their their songs were everywhere. You heard them all over the place on rock radio. Uh, so, you know, I was a fan of theirs, but I, I never bought a Linkin Park album. Like, I've never bought one of their records. I, I only know their hits. Um, but I would, you know, call, say that I like the songs that I did here. Chester Bennington had a really interesting voice. And when I heard about his suicide, though, it really, really hurt me. For some reason, I don't know quite why. Like I said, I mean, this is not a guy that I, I didn't know much about him. Um, he, he's not like one of my idols or something. It, it's just one of those guys that I feel like I kind of grew up with his music. And the fact that he would kill himself, you know, with, you know, he's got that many kids and he was such a good friend of Chris Cornell. And I, I'm just, I just felt like putting myself in his shoes and, and, and wondering what he was going through that led him to do that, to kill himself. Uh, it just really got to me. There's just so much sadness out there, uh, my friend. I mean, you know it. 
You read about it all the time. Um, and I just feel like the, his death is another reminder that being an artist is really, really hard. Like, it's hard to be, you know, in the creative business. It's tough um, when you've had some success and, you know, the spotlight's on you. It's really, really hard. Some people make being a celebrity look easy. Like, people like George Clooney, uh, people even like, you know, Bruce Springsteen. They make, like, it look like it's really easy. Like, they'll just they wake up, write something great. You know, they always, you know, kind of have a smile on. If you see them doing an interview, they say something prophetic, and they have a good family life and all this stuff. They make it look really, really easy. But the the reality is it's not really that easy. It's just like life itself. It's hard. And for some people, it's even harder because they've got depression or whatever. So, I you know, people like Chester Bennington or Chris Cornell, Heath Ledger, Philip Seymour Hoffman, those are the guys that show us how fucking hard it is to be in the spotlight. A lot of pressure there, man. A lot of pressure that you can't even understand unless you've been there. And we should have guessed that this guy was suicidal when his most famous lyric, the most famous lyric that Chester Bennington ever sang was, in the end, it doesn't even matter. I mean, how much more nihilistic can you get than that? But who hasn't felt that way before? In the end, it doesn't even matter. So, you know, it's just, it really, really crushed me uh, to hear that he had he had taken his life and, just it's sad, man. Just a lot of sadness out there. We'll never know, you know, totally what he was going through and what all he was thinking and what he was facing. But just a sad, sad loss uh, of a guy who, you know, he really had a great voice and he had a family and all this stuff and uh, just just a, a lot of friends and really bummed me out. So gone too soon, Mr. Chester Bennington of Lincoln Park. I tried so We also, in the last month, lost Martin Landau, who I'm going to point you to Crimes and Misdemeanors, the Woody Allen movie. That is one of my all-time favorite movies, probably in my top 30 favorite movies ever. And Martin Landau is so goddamn good in that film. Um, he's just its unbelievable. So sad that he he died, and George Romero died as well, the guy who brought us the zombie film. He, like, invented the zombie movie, and he made the zombie movie something that was symbolic for talking about racism, for talking about homophobia, for talking about any kind of, you know, prejudice. His movies were like these political films that were disguised as just these, you know, B-zombie horror movies. But Romero was a smart guy, a genius, and he basically invented a genre that's still very popular, the zombie movies. So he's going to be missed as well. So all these guys, man, just, just sad. So there's my podcast of death moment specifically for you, Andy. All right, let's move right along and talk about a movie that's actually in theaters right now. It's Atomic Blonde, starring Charlize Theron as this ass-kicking um, MI6 British spy who's uh, in Berlin in a few days before the Berlin Wall falls in 1989. And she's kicking ass, and she's trying to uncover this list that would expose the names, the real names and the code names of all these undercover MI6 operatives that are all throughout. I'm not sure if they were all throughout the world or just there in Berlin, but either way, it'd be very bad if this list got out. So storylines kind of like Mission Impossible 1, uh, but with Charlize Theron instead of Tom Cruise, and she's kicking even probably more ass than Ethan Hunt did. So Atomic Blonde is in theaters right now. Do you ever have a movie 
come out that you really want to like, like you've seen the trailers and you're just like, oh my God, I am going to love this thing. This is right up my alley. This has got all this shit that I love. It's got actors I love. The look is awesome. I am going to love this movie. You go and you sit down and watch it and you don't really love it. You know, you thought you were going to love it. You didn't love it. And you found yourself wanting to really like it a lot, but you couldn't justify yourself that you really liked it. That's how I was with Atomic Blonde. I wanted to love this movie. I am someone who loves spy films. As I've told you before, all the James Bond movies, I own them all. I've seen them all several times. I love the James Bond movies. I love movies. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is in my top five favorite movies of all time. Spy movies are like some of my all-time favorites. So, and I love John Le Carre's novels, and I'm just I'm a big spy film guy. So, I saw the previews for this. I like Charlize Theron a lot too. She's one of my favorite female actors, one of my favorite actors. Period. She's like 41 years old at this point, carrying an action movie where she's you know sexy and also uh, capable and whipping ass and doing all this stuff and doing her own, a lot of her own stunts. And I'm just impressed by that. Because everyone always says that women in Hollywood, they can't get roles after 40. And here's uh, Charlize Theron being one to try to you know, buck that and prove that wrong and show studios that they don't need to just hire the next hot actor, young actor, female actor, um, to carry their movie. Just go with the best actor. And in this case, she was it. So I just want to say off the start. Charlize Theron is great in this movie. She's she is very good in this movie. The whole cast is really good. It's got John Goodman. It's got Toby Jones, who I love. It's got uh, James McAvoy is in it. Sophia Boutella, who I was just talking a couple episodes back. Uh, I really liked her in The Mummy, even though that movie did flop. Um, so it's got a really good cast, and all the actors do a very nice job. It's got this 1980s aesthetic. It's another one of those movies like Drive with Ryan Gosling, where it's you can tell that. The filmmaker just wants it to look like a Michael Mann movie from 1986. There's nothing wrong with that. I love a good Michael Mann movie, but everybody's kind of doing that now. Like Everyone loves making their movie look like it came out in the 1980s. That's definitely one of the things that this film is doing as well, because I mean it is set in the 80s, so it makes sense. But my problem with Atomic Blonde came down to the fact that at the end of the day, I feel like they're touting this movie as like female action star. Look, it's feminism at work. But really, all it was was just typical male fantasies dressed up in the guise of feminism. And I don't like that. It, the whole thing felt just shallow to me um, because the, the lead character, who's named Lorraine Broughton and is played by Charlize Theron, she's the atomic blonde. And she's got this great blonde hair and she's always dressed very stylishly. And she's just she's a, she's a cool character. There's no question about it. But her positive attributes are those of a man. I mean, these are these are positive male attributes that she exhibits. She's like like I said, she's an ass kicker. She's able to handle herself in a fight. She never backs down from, you know, a physical confrontation uh, with anyone. She's very physically fit. She uh, kind of sleeps with whoever she wants to and doesn't really think twice about it. She drinks a lot and smokes a lot. I mean, once again, these are typical characteristics shown by male action stars by like a John McClane or a James Bond or something like that. And you can say, I mean, some people might argue that it's feminism just to take a character that's typically played by a man and make it a woman. But I don't really agree with that because that's to me, that's not impressive. All, All you have to do in the script is change this character to a man. And all of a sudden it's a male action star that doesn't like, there's nothing really about her that's intrinsically feminine or, um, you know, shows off that shows to regular women out there because most women are not like this woman. 
I mean, most men are not like this woman. She's she's extreme, okay? So there's not really a lesson here for any women out there to watch and be like, well, you know, I'm great just the way I am or, uh, you know, the things that I've the things that I've held important in my life, the things that I've stri- strived to try to be um, are not really represented in this movie and they don't really – there's no positive feedback being given here to me. It kind of tells me I need to act more like a man. I feel like is the way if women go to see Atomic Blonde, that's the way they'll feel at the end of the day. I need to start drinking more vodka straight, no no cocktails. I need to start learning how to fight and do all this you know shit that's really kind of shallow and it just looks cool in a movie and that's it. And of course, in Atomic Blonde, Lorraine is shown to be bisexual. She is, she's shown to have a relationship with a male character, a male spy. She's also shown to have a couple sex scenes with a female spy. And I have no problem with characters being bisexual or being gay or being straight, whatever. It doesn't matter. But why are female characters like this always, always presented as bisexual, always. And they're not just bisexual. They're bisexual and they're promiscuous as well. I mean, why is that? And I, you know the reason why. It's a rhetorical question. But at the same time, can you imagine going to see a James Bond movie and Bond just in the middle of it, like starting to make out with Q or just like kissing some dude who he's working with in another country, you know, just to kind of like get closer to him, like having sex with him. I mean, could you imagine that? You know how distracted people would be? People would um, would be like going nuts to ask him for this movie to be banned and it, it just all kinds of things. But not just because it's Bond, but just any male action star. If he had like a gay scene or a bisexual scene, people would not be happy about that. People would not like that. Yet you get a, you know, like a hot blonde character. And of course she's got to have sex with a hot brunette woman. And she's got to have sex with a guy too. And you know, she'll just have sex with anybody. It doesn't matter. Gender doesn't matter. So it's like I said, just lazy, shallow and feels like all they're trying to do is get a rise out of the audience. And that's basically, uh, you know, I think what they've accomplished here. So I don't know. I wasn't nuts about atomic blonde. I think there's a lot more, Good movies out there right now that are more worth your time, like uh, War for the Planet of the Apes. I'd go see that if I were you. Uh, check out that whole tri- – just spend your time watching that whole trilogy um, right now. Uh, I mean, just go see whatever. But Atomic Blonde right now is in theaters. I just felt – I don't know. I just saw right through it. It's a well-made movie, though. The action's really good. There's a there's a fight scene at the end that's one of my favorite fight scenes I've ever watched. But I wish it had been just more substantive. I wish it hadn't been so surfacey. Um, and so transparent as far as how it presented, you know, its its lead character. I don't know. That, 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 that's my thing. The, the movie was written and directed by men. The movie was based on a graphic novel that was also written and illustrated by two men. So once again, I feel like it's just male fantasies under the guise of feminism. But maybe that's just me. So Atomic Blonde right now is in theaters starring Charlize Theron. I didn't think that you would show Study on the rocks. You pay attention. I look for pleasure in the details. Speaking of which, I've been dying to ask you a question. Let's go someplace quiet. Always got to have that girl-girl kissing scene, though, man. Always. It's like a requisite of if there's an ass kicking female character, she's gotta she she's gotta kiss another woman at some point. Just always has to happen. Pretty, pretty, pretty lazy at this point. Now on the other hand, let me real quick give you a recommendation for a movie that I 
did recommend for you uh, about a year ago here on the show, but it's back now on HBO, Insecure, starring Issa Rae as a character named Issa, but it's not her, uh, on this show that is now in its second season on HBO. I love Insecure. The first season really blew me away. It was eight episodes, half-hour episodes, um, and I burned through it like in two days, and I just loved the characters on the show. I thought Issa was instantly like one of my favorite leads and somebody who I could relate to, but also I felt like really represented a lot of women out there, um, regardless of race, but especially young women. I mean, it's not really about something I don't know if many older women could relate to her so much, but it's this is definitely like a young woman's show about a young woman that I feel like is very relatable for a lot of young men and young women out there right now. Um, and the show follows this young woman named Issa uh, as she's just, you know, basically trying to live her life. She's uh, trying to decide between uh, different men in her life. The first season sees her dating uh, this guy named Lawrence that she's been with for a long time, and the relationship's kind of lost all of its zeal, and they're both just kind of lazy about it at this point, just going through the motions, and, um, you know, some bad things happen, and the relationship ends up coming kind of to a screeching halt at the end of the first season. Now the second season picks up with Issa now single and uh, not really wanting to be single. So this is just this is a girl who she does not know like what she wants, just doesn't know what she wants out of life yet. And she's trying to figure it out like a lot of us are. And that's one of the things that makes this show so charming. She's got this great group of friends that she hangs out with a lot. Um, she's got this job that sets her up for a lot of funny situations. She works with this nonprofit uh, that reaches out in schools and um, especially like schools that are public schools in the city that don't have you know, the best records and trying to get kids more engaged in class and all that. That's that's what she does for a living. She works with all these white people. She's the only uh, black woman in the office. And just like her other friend who works at a law firm, also the only black woman at her office. Uh, and, you know, it goes through that, talks about the, the problems of that, the things that you hear from white coworkers that they think are okay to say but are not really um, – and just the little minutia that it takes to get through life being a minority, not only as uh, as a black woman, but again as a woman as well. The things you have to go through there. So it's a it's a really good show. Like it, it to me is what girls like could have been if girls were just better. I never thought girls was that good. Insecure is is much better than that show to me. Um, and it's really funny. She's just Issa Rae is so funny. The show's created by her and Larry Wilmore. The show's more just about fleshing out characters and talking about relationships in the modern world. Um, and it's just a really cool show. It's so funny. Um, and I'm so glad that it's back right now. It's uh, it's it's right up there with my favorite HBO shows uh, that are on currently. Uh, and I'm so glad that season two is back on HBO again. You can watch uh, all of season one on HBO now. Uh, only eight episodes, one season, and then uh, the, the second season, you know, now, like I said, is underway. And I don't know how many episodes it's going to be. I'm guessing eight to ten range as well. But half-hour episodes, uh, a quick watch, and just a really funny show with characters that I think you'll enjoy spending some time with. It's got a little bit of Sex in the City in there as well, but uh, less pretentious than that, more relatable and uh, funnier also, I think, than Sex in the City was. Even though I was a Sex in the City fan, but I think Insecure, again, is just a little bit better. This is probably uh, my favorite of all the female-led comedies that this network has done, and there have been a few of them over the years. I like this one the most, though. It's really gotten off to a great start. So check out Insecure right now on HBO. Okay. Hey, so, yeah, I just wanted to check in to see how you were acclimating. Oh, I'm good. Thanks. 
good, because, you know, I just... I just want to make sure that no one gets the wrong impression of you. Um, why would they? Mark said I was doing great. Yeah, yeah. and you are. It's just, you know, sometimes you can be a little... Girl, you know how these white people are? If you want to be successful here, you got to know when to switch it up a little bit. Hmm. I appreciate your feedback, but I didn't switch it up in my interview with the senior partners, and I didn't switch it up when I was named editor of the Law Review, so I don't think I need to switch it up now. But... Thank you so much. And unlike Atomic Blonde, that to me is a show that truly uh, could be considered feminist because the characters are really well-rounded, well-defined. They're not defined by sex. They're not defined by having sex or by the size of their breasts or the way they look or anything like that. I mean, they're they're good-looking women, of course, but um, this is TV at the end of the day, and certain maxims are not going to go away ever. But the characters themselves are just really well-defined on their own merits as people. Um, and they're fuck-ups, too. I mean, they're not like perfect human beings, which is also refreshing to see uh, in terms of depictions of, uh, of uh, powerful female characters as well. All right, last thing before I boot you out the door, let's uh, talk about two movies right now that are streaming on Netflix and Amazon that uh, I want to recommend to you in case you haven't seen. First off, on Netflix from 2007... Add this one to your queue, Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street. This was Tim Burton's adaptation of the Stephen Sondheim classic musical, and uh, starring in the lead role of Sweeney Todd is Johnny Depp, and co-starring Helena Bonham Carter, Tim Burton's wife, as the woman who, of course, runs the pie shop. And when he kills people, he sends them downstairs, and she bakes their bodies into pies, and the pies sell like hotcakes, man. It is a sick idea for a show. But this movie's really, this is one of Tim Burton's best. This might be the last, like, great film that he's done, I feel like. And that's this has been, you know, 10 years ago. But uh, it's a really well-done musical adaptation on film. And it's just a gory movie. The performances are really good. Johnny Depp has a has a good voice he proves here. And uh, it's, it's fun to see him and Helena Bonham Carter uh, playing these parts together. Uh, and the costumes and stuff, I mean, it's pure, it's pure Tim Burton all the way. Also, so definitely check out um, check out Sweeney Todd on Netflix, especially if you like musicals. But if you like them a little dark, uh, I think you'll really dig it. And the music's awesome. I mean, it's Stephen Sondheim. So what do you want? And on Amazon, also streaming right now that you may not have seen from 2016, it's Captain Fantastic starring Viggo Mortensen as a father of a bunch of kids. I can't even remember how many kids he has, like 10 kids. And he lives with them in this like commune out in the woods and uh, rides around with them in this giant school bus. He te- he schools them himself. He trains them, you know, gives them combat training, teaches them how to hunt for their own food, all this stuff. They live off the land, um, and some people might consider it child abuse, and that's kind of what the show gets, uh, what the movie gets into, I should say. Viggo Mortensen was nominated for an Oscar for his role in this movie, and he's very good in it. The kids in it are all very good. This was a, just a cool movie about a family, uh, and it's a really funny movie as well. Uh, so give Captain Fantastic a, a watch. It might change your mind on a few things. Uh, I know it had me thinking about some things I do in my own life that maybe I should change as well. So it's a uh, it's a it's a really unique movie that came out last year, and uh, just a just a good watch. Cool movie about parenting and about uh, an off the beaten path family. So that's Captain Fantastic, and that right now is on Amazon Prime Video. All right, that's going to do it for another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. We'll talk to you in a few more weeks, my friend. Thank you very much for checking us out. As always, please 
spread the word and help us grow the show. And if you haven't already, go to iTunes and please give us a nice, glowing five-star review. Only if you mean it, though. I don't want any fake-ass reviews, all right? Only if you mean it, my friend. I'm Clint Davis, Movies and TV Editor at OverdueReview.com. Thanks again to my friend Andy Sedlak, Music Editor at OverdueReview.com. Check us out there at the website if you want to read more of our musings on movies, TV, and music. Talk to you next time. Until then, stream on. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.